Um, we won't take all your requests because I, I trust the vicar did that. But here's a great collect from the old hymnal for Epiphany. O God, who by the leading of a star didst manifest thine only begotten Son to the Gentiles, mercifully grant that we, who know thee now by faith, may after this life have the fruition of thy glorious Godhead, through the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. That one ends, the great part of that collect, which has been changed in some of the newer hymnals, it ends, may come to the fruition of thy Godhead, which is just like First Peter where it says, make us partakers of your divine nature. Um, and I don't know if you think about that very often, but you know, being a Christian doesn't just mean that uh, somehow Jesus has forgiven your sins or somehow you, know, you and Jesus are best friends, or even worse would be just saying, now I've got the Holy Spirit. Being a Christian means uh, you're one flesh with Christ. And uh, even more than that, it means you participate in all that Jesus has. This is Luther's great revelation of the great exchange. Whatever you've got, you give to Jesus, and whatever Jesus has got, I already marked it, Kirby. Whatever, oh, thank you. Whatever you've got, uh, you give to Jesus, and whatever Jesus has got, he gives to you. So you actually, uh, you actually throughout your life become more and more divine. Okay? What's going on back there? A lot of chatter. <laughs> That's right. And I never said anything like that. Uh, but just think about that. You know, the next time you come to the Eucharist, um, you know, you not only consume Jesus, his body, and his blood, then you just be a cannibal, nor do you just consume bread and wine, then you just be a Calvinist. Uh, you consume the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Jesus. All that Jesus has right now at the right hand of the Father you get at the Eucharist. And that should dramatically change the way you live your life. Okay? Um, so just sort of carrying on like nothing's happened isn't the Jesus way. You'll notice in the text for Epiphany, um, I always find it stunning as I was working on a sermon for this weekend, how in just, you know, 16 days, Jesus has grown up 30 years. So why is that? Why do we move so quickly? Um... You know, why don't we, why doesn't the church give us any time to sort of rejoice in the life of Jesus? And I know we can say, well, we don't have a lot recorded about the life of Jesus. That's true. But um, with everything else in the world, we sort of take our time to ease into things. Christmas is three weeks, you know, kids get time off school. But how come in the church, in 16 days, he's grown up 30 years? And guess what? In five weeks or six weeks, it'll be Lent. So why is that? Why do we move so quickly? I have an idea. I think I know why it is, but I'm not going to tell you because then you won't need to come on Sunday. Um, but why is it that we move so quickly? So, um, but that's the Jesus way. He's always on to the next thing. All right, Psalm 57. Open up your Bibles. Forget a Bible? Need one? Anybody else need a Bible? All right. You're welcome. Psalm 57. I don't think we've done this one yet. Okay. Isn't it strange that over Christmas we don't really read any psalms? Why? I mean, why is that? <laughs> You're a bit more pious than the rest of the group. It's strange that over Christmas, uh, in, in a, it's in the church, but it's also in the world, you sort of... Um, relish all the things you, you always have loved as a child. And try to, you almost do too much of it. I'll give you an example. I think, am 
Well, my, my, my in-laws go to St. Paul in Fort Wayne, which is sort of, you know, Mecca there in Fort Wayne, and they have this, ra- they have this Christmas service that's broadcast on the radio, 11 p.m., and it's all over the place. And they, of course, process into Once in Royal David City, and then they sing O Come All You Faithful at the end. So they came out for Christmas, and they said, did you sing O Come All You Faithful on Christmas Eve? I said, no. They're like, are you guys really the church? Um, I wouldn't pin that on me, necessarily. Oh, you guys, plural. Clergy, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other two are more given to those sorts of things. I, I actually like praise bands a bit. I was in, uh, I was out in, I was out in, the radio is on right now. I hope this gets out. I hope this gets out. I was out in Delaware for a baptism. This is actually an ingenious thing. If I was ever at another parish that had a praise service, here's what I'd do. The guy said, the pastor said, this is all offline. He said, "Eh, I really don't like praise bands, but here's what we did. People wanted it. So we said, almost like a carol service, they said, we're going to have one evening where we just sing hours of praise songs. Guess what? People got exhausted and never came back. (laughs) And they said, hey, we offered three hours of praise songs. You know, you don't get that on Sunday morning. So that would be the thing to do. Um, just do it so much that people don't like it anymore. I know, Betty. Right now you're thinking, I can't believe he just said that. (laughs) Nor can I believe he didn't shave to come down and teach today. All right, Psalm 57. Uh, Just listen. I didn't shave because Pastor Bruzik's on vacation, so there's no one to rag me about it. Uh, (laughs) Well, if that's what you think. uh, All right, here we go. Psalm 57. Actually, I'd like to see that new movie that he's in. What's it called? You don't want to see it? You saw it? With your husband? That's right. You woke me up. I remember that. Um, I saw, for the first time in in 18 months, I I saw a movie at the movie theater. Guess what it was? No, although I would like to see that. No, not the frog prince. Emma was scared. Alvin and the chipmunks, the squeak wolf. Now Emma dances and sings all the single ladies. That's all she does now. (laughs) Yeah. This one had the added bonus of female chipmunks. That was fun. Yeah. $37 later. What a disaster. Uh, Okay. Psalm 57. What do you hear? Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious, for I have made thee my refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of thy wings until the storms are past. I will call upon God most high, on God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send his truth and his love that never fails. He will send from heaven and save me. God himself will frustrate my persecutors. For I lie down among lions, man-eaters, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and whose tongues are sharp swords. Show thyself, O God, high above the heavens. Let thy glory shine over all the earth. Men have prepared a net to catch me as I walk, but I bow my head to escape from it. They have dug a pit in my path, but have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and raise a psalm. Awake, my spirit, awake, lute and harp. I will awake at dawn of day. I will confess thee, O Lord, among the peoples, among the nations. I will raise a psalm to thee, for thy unfailing love is wide as the heavens, and thy truth reaches to the skies. Show thyself, O God, high above the heavens. Let thy glory shine over all the earth. What did you hear? 
I know what I heard, but what did you hear? Any of you read that psalm before? I don't think I had either. Yes. <clears throat> In fact, there are, two, there are really two parts to the psalm. Uh, the first five verses are really about trust. However, the last, how many verses are there altogether? Eleven, yeah. So six through eleven are all praise. Okay? Now why, uh, just, just think about that for a minute. Why would that be the natural progression in the Christian life? To go from trust to praise. What comes before trust? If you're not trusting, you are good, fearful, doubting, yeah, unbelieving, good. So fearful, doubting, worried, anxious. Say that again. Okay. Pain to live with. What else? How many of you of late have sort of felt any of these things? <laughs> what would be the most, on this list, what do you think has, has sort of plagued you the most? All of them. <laughs> Pain to live with. Oh, you are. I thought you were talking about someone else. Okay. Okay, good. So really, so there's sort of, So this is really the result of all these feelings. You're not just a pain to live with. Something has made you a pain to live with. Yeah. Okay? Now, are all of these, um, at the root of these, who's the focus at the root of all of these? Yourself. Yourself, right? That's a strange thing about fear. Um, fear is, and I would challenge, and I've said this before, I would challenge you to think about this. Find a fear that ultimately is not concerned with yourself. You might say, I'm worried about my kids. What are you really worried about? You're going to lose them. That's ultimately about, about you, right? Um, so find a fear that's not concerned with self. I would propose to you that all fear is concerned with self. So all fear is, and I know, I know it, was, it wasn't said this way when AOR was here, and I, I do take the point. They said some fears are good fears, and I think they were speaking of fear differently than I am. But true fear uh, is always in some sense, a sin. Exactly. No, I think you're right. I think the good thing about fear is it shows you what you love. Right? If you're worried about something, it shows you what you love. Uh, and in that sense, fear can be helpful. And, and obviously, fear of the Lord is what they were after, first commandment stuff, and that obviously is a good fear. But that's different than this. What did you have, Mary? Right. 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 So ultimately, fear is misperception. Right. Yeah. Even when you think about illness or whatever the fear may be, in some sense that's a misperception because the reality is, as a Christian, even in the midst of illness, 
there's something better to come, and that's what we miss. So we misperceive the reality. Someone have something back there? You all okay? Right. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and when Dr. Kleining was here, he said, fear no man. Fear no man, which is, so there are different fears in life. You can worry about certain things, and also you can worry about other people, what they'll do, what they'll say, what they'll think. And, the graded, and so he was sort of, it was more interpersonal, but he said, fear no man. Right? Does Jesus fear anybody? No, nothing to fear. Uh, but this sort of is the natural progression then. So you go from fear, then you doubt, uh, you get worried, maybe worry pops up here, you get anxious, you know, and then you're a pain to live with, right? Um, and the Lord's all about calming fears. In fact, he's all about eliminating fears. What's the first thing he says to Mary at the Annunciation? Fear not, right? Fear not. Um, and so there's your, there's your proof that at least before the Annunciation, Mary was a sinner. So when your Roman Catholic friends talk, now I will, uh, well, this is getting off topic. However, uh, Mary is cleansed of all sin in the Annunciation, but for folks who say before the Annunciation she was without sin, there's your evidence. You know, fear not. Yep. Yep. Right. But it's all, that that's all, you're right, it's natural insofar as it's natural post-Eden. So we say every Sunday, I'm by nature sinful and unclean. You are post-Eden. That, but, that, but don't think of yourself as created to be one who fears or created to be one who's unclean. And that's part of the deal. You notice everything in Eden, if you look back at Eden, if you sort of read the Genesis account, everything in Eden is meant to be peaceful and calm. Even... The Lord walks with them in the cool of the day. There's no heat. There's no, I mean, it's not like you're, you know, you're not on the beach. It's none of that. It's the most peaceful, calm, relaxing place you can imagine. So there's absolutely no reason to fear. And then once that happens, once that relationship has been broken and you're outside of Eden, suddenly now uh, you fear everything, even the angel the Lord puts at the gate, right? What does the angel have, do you remember, at the gate of Eden? Well, I mean, sword. I'd be afraid. <laughs> You got some angel who you kind of can recognize, but who doesn't really have a body who's, you know, wielding this flaming sword. You know, that, that only happens in movies, but that's what the Lord did. Okay? And I, of course, watch a lot of movies. <clears throat> I notice right away uh, in verse 1, I will take refuge in the shadow of thy wings until the storms are past. And it reminded me as I read it of the Advent Collects, remember we, well, we used to do them, now we do Tizay, but um, we used to have those great chant tones that I think Pastor Peyton put together, and, and Erica Grass would always sing it, but we would sing at the end of the night until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed, right? That's calm, that's Eden. Because why is it that you're so fearful? You have too much going on in your life. Yeah. I know what you're thinking. Yeah. Well, if the vicar were down here, we could have him go up and get a Hebrew text, but 
Let's see. I don't think um, I don't think uh, Reardon makes any note of that. What would be the difference? Vic. Sorry, can you go get me a Hebrew text? Do you have an Do you have an Do you have an interlinear Hebrew? <laughs> Actually, get me get me a Hebrew text and grab. Uh, there should be a Greek on one of my shelves. Just look around my office. It's not that big. There aren't that many books. Just find that one text that's got the Greek Old Testament along with the translation. It should be in there. Could be. It's it's over by the window. I can see it right now. The squeak wolf. I was surprised to see that they said on, on the Today Show that um, what's the avatar had been pirated like 50,000 times. They no, made no mention of Alvin and the Chipmunks being pirated. I couldn't figure that out. I went with my PDA and I was trying to get a video of it, but it just didn't work. There were only about 12 people in the whole theater, and I think my family and I had seven of the seats. Emma had so much Coke and popcorn See, here's the problem. Yeah, exactly. When you go with my family, because they don't see Emma enough, so they, their way of spoiling her is giving her exactly what she wants, which is utterly the worst kind of parenting you could imagine. That's part. So they come in. They come in with, yeah, right. So they come in with, with three of these extra large popcorns and pops. And I said, why did you buy those? Well, they're free refills. I'm like, oh my goodness. So Emma is over there. Won't take her lips off the coke. And comes out and is almost shaking. She's so, and of course she had like gummy bears and oh, it was a mess. Took three days for her to calm down. All right, so I don't know about the storms or the uh, or the disasters. Either way, it's not a good thing. Um, Yes, right. We can't quite figure out what to say. Yes. Yep, yep. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Do you remember in the movie, uh, this, is what I, this is what comes to mind. I'm just going to tell you what comes to mind. In the movie Independence Day, you ever seen that movie? What's uh, what's Will Smith's wife name in that movie? Is that real name? Is that Jada Pinkett? Jada Pinkett Smith? Do you remember when the disaster was coming over everything, and they sort of with the dogs snuck into? They were in a tunnel and snuck into a. That's sort of what this is like. The disaster is going to destroy everything, and she kind of you know you kind of sneak off into the to a little alleyway that's protected, and what's protecting you is the shadow of his wings, okay? Um, so that's sort of what comes to mind. The other thing that comes to mind, if you look at the next verse, I'm sorry, look at uh, look at verse 6. They have dug a pit in my path. They have dug a pit in my path, but have fallen into it themselves. And of course, what movie comes to mind? One of my favorite movies, Cold Mountain. Love that movie. Do you remember the very opening scene where they're about to blow up the pit so they can come and destroy the people? What happens? Do you remember? Have any of you seen this movie, Cold Mountain? You guys are really missing out. Yes, Nicole Kidman. 
Remember, they, they set all these bombs to, to make a huge pit so the guys will fall down in it and then they can shoot them. I don't remember if it's the north or the south. But they blow this thing up. There's a big pit. The attacking forces run down into it, and guess what? They can't get up the other side. So the people they're trying to attack, it's like, he said, it's like shooting chicken. It's like a chicken hunt because they're just standing there. They're in the pit. So they built a pit that they themselves can't get out of. That's what's happening here. All your enemies are building a pit. They think they're going to trap you. But guess what happens? It's like the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments. The water comes back over, right? Did you find it, buddy? I'm looking at Psalm 57, verse 1. I know those are Roman numerals. That might be a little more. It's a little different. Once you get up into the 20s and 30s, it's a little more. Greek, not Latin. Okay, keep going. You find it? Psalm 57, verse now it's 58. Oh, here we go. Have mercy. Oh, now this is interesting. Have mercy upon me, O God. Have mercy upon me, for my soul has trusted in thee, and in the shadow of thy wings will I hope until the iniquity has passed away. Now let's see what the... That would be Greek. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Until my, until the iniquity has passed away. Yeah, that's interesting. So you've got two things going on. You've got sort of this natural wonder, storm, disaster, and you've got then sin. Okay? So how does that work together? Isn't that fast? He hides in the cave. And that for, da- that for David is the shadow of the wings. I like that you put the tomb. It's been a tomb just then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, in fact, uh, he, yeah. Yeah, that tomb is like, hey, play, get that loot out. Play do not destroy. <laughs> yeah. All seven verses. It'd be great. No, they, uh, in fact, the chant tones, even for the Hebrews, are very similar to what you chant today. People get sort of, uh, you know, a bit exhausted with just the basic chant, bum, 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 whatever it may be. Those chant tones are what people chanted, you know, 4,000 years ago. Yeah, he's like, hey, don't let this guy, you know, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that he hides in a cave. People always take refuge, at least in the Old Testament, in caves, which has a great Christmas connection because you remember... Jesus was born not in a manger like you set up at your house. He was actually born in a cave, right? He may have been. <laughs> now, you've been over there. You've been over there before, and so you could give a first-hand account. When I leave, you can sort of fill in all the gaps. But it would be, it w- at least some of the historical evidence says, it wouldn't be uh, maybe your, your average manger like what you all set up at home. Okay? Right. No, this, is, this ruins the connection. Just hold on. When I leave, you can say whatever you want. That's what everyone else does. Okay, so the connection is Jesus, you remember, is born in something that may, uh, may not be a cave but maybe have some rocky quality to it. Uh, and then when he's buried, then when he's buried, where does he go? In a cave. When he's born, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths, and when he dies, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. Okay, see, now don't say anything until I leave because then you're going to ruin the effect. There are all these connections. (laughs) 
But it's interesting at least that in the Old Testament, people are hiding in a cave. If there is any connection, it might, there might be something to it. Okay? Now, could it look like the one you set up on your mantle? Sure. Go ahead. Would you like to fill us in now, now that I've said it and got it all out of my system? Be gentle. Yes. Yes, right. Not like a Motel 6. Right. Right. Yeah, right. Right. See? It all makes sense now. They laid him on a stone slab at his birth, and they laid him on a stone slab at his death. All right. Glad I got out of that one. All right. Uh, let's see. So we got, so in some sense, so iniquity then is compared with storms or with uh, destruction. And you can see how iniquity, I mean, this is just sin, how sin could be like a minor storm or it could be like a disaster, right? I mean, congregations all the time and, and human beings, sin, sin can be so destructive. It can set you back, you know, two years in the Christian life or it can set you back an eternity in the Christian life. Um, and it can do the same thing with congregations. Congregations that have sort of rampant sin can be so destroyed by it that it's as though they never existed. Okay, and that's the destruction bit. At the same time, this is, I mean, and in some sense, Rome gets this right. There is, in some sense, a distinction between sins. Some are venial sins. They're sort of the normal course of everyday life, right? You have a bad day, you talk, you, you, you know, maybe look at someone crossways, whatever. And there are some sins which are just terribly destructive. Um, that doesn't mean in the eyes of God they're any different, but in the eyes of the world and in the course of the church's life, they are very different. And I think, especially after having AOR here, you find that gossip and breaking the Eighth Commandment are in some sense mortal sins because <laughs> they destroy people. It's not just having a bad day with somebody. It actually destroys reputations, persons, communities, everything. And, and that's what's happening here. Saul can come and kill him, um, and sin can come and kill you, and at the same time it might just set you back a couple days. So it's either a storm or a disaster. It could be both. And though, like, Jan, I'm thinking of you working with people who have been through disasters. I mean, homes aren't even rebuilt yet. You know what I mean? I mean, that takes tens and twenty. I mean, that, that takes tons of time to sort of turn around. Um, and it's the same thing with sin. So just, you know, sort of watch yourselves. Now listen to this. Verse 2. I will call upon God most high, on God who fulfills his purpose for me. On God who fulfills his purpose for me. So the Lord does the verbs. The Lord's got a plan for you. You're not a puppet, but he sort of says, come walk this way, and if you do it, then you're uh, living faithfully within his steps. He will send his truth. Now this should be incarnational talk here. There should be Christmas talk. He sends his truth and his love that never fails. He will send from heaven and save me. Now, there is sort of a double sending here, and this is important. There's a double sending in, what is that, verse 4? 3. There's a double sending, and you see this later on in the New Testament. Flip to Galatians chapter 4. Now, yes, here we go. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. You see a double sending here. So remember, you have three persons to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and you see a double sending in the New Testament. And I think that's what this psalm is referencing. God has sent into our heart, I'm sorry, verse 4, 
God sent his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, to purchase freedom for the subjects of the law in order that we might, might attain the status of sons. So the first sending is he sends his son. That's Christmas. To prove you are sons, God has sent into our hearts the spirit of his son, crying, Abba, Father. You are therefore no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then also by God's own act, an heir. So he sends uh, into space and to time, he sends his son. This is sort of his vertical sending, right? His son is born or conceived, he's born, he lives, he suffers, he dies. He's a real man. And yet, after the son goes back to the father, remember Jesus says in John's Gospel, unless I go to my father, I can't send the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And, you, and, and, and think about this. The sending of the Holy Spirit, what event in the church is that called? Pentecost. Pentecost happens how many days after Easter? 50, yeah. I, I never remember if it's 40 or 50. What happens 40? Ascension? Ascension, yeah. So 50 days after, he sends the Holy Spirit. But think about what happens on the cross as Jesus dies. And maybe if you grew up in sort of an old Lutheran TLH kind of congregation, this happened there too. Remember, as Jesus is just about to die on the cross, um, he bows his head, and it says he gave up the ghost, gave up the spirit. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit. It doesn't just mean his spirit as a human being. That's the Holy Spirit he received at his baptism, the one he'll get this Sunday. So in some sense, Jesus' crucifixion is the first Pentecost. You don't have to wait 50 days to get it. It happens at his crucifixion where he gives up the ghost. And traditionally, Lutheran pastors, and you see we do this as well, at that moment, pause and go down on one knee. They genuflect at that point. Because the spirit he received at his baptism, he's now given up to the world. Okay, But we celebrate it at Pentecost. And what happens at Pentecost? He sends the Holy Spirit down, which then changes your relation, relationship vertically. Okay, So you have this vertical and this horizontal sending, this double sending. And this is what the psalm is referencing. Okay, you have a question? Yeah. Right. Once he gets his, once he gets the spirit, and where does he get his spirit? He gets it at his baptism, right? Because to be Christed is just to be anointed. It's to receive the spirit. And you see it visibly because the Holy Spirit will come down on him like a dove. When he gets the spirit, he has the freedom to give it out. And he gives it out all over. Uh, but you see it primarily beginning at the crucifixion and then all the time after the resurrection. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Zechariah. Well, the Holy Spirit's certainly present before the baptism of Jesus. But it wouldn't have come necessarily from the incarnate Christ. So he only gives it out as a man after his baptism. Who gives it out before that? The Father would have given it out. But you can't, you have to see, and this is, this is sort of maybe a, a change in perspective for, for a lot of us, we have to see, beginning in Genesis 1, all three persons of the Trinity at work. So it doesn't just, doesn't just sort of happen that when Jesus comes on the scene, finally you see the Son. You see the Son in the very beginning, because the first thing the Lord does is speak, and the Son is the Word. Yes, you remember Genesis 1? Uh, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. He hovers over the water, about to create. It's very baptismal. Okay, So yeah, you see him all over. 
yet right. If you're part of the covenant, you're part of God's plan. If you're part of God's plan, you have his gifts. And if you have his gifts, you have his spirit. But there are certain people, this is what you have to remember, there are certain people who the Lord gives sort of an extra dose to. Okay? So people will say at an ordination, for a pastor, for example, why does the presiding minister put his hands on the head of the guy to be ordained and say, receive the Holy Spirit? Doesn't he already have it? Yeah, he does. But remember, in the scriptures, when the Lord sends a person out to do something specific, he'll oftentimes give him his spirit again. Sort of a little extra juice. It's like Gatorade before going out to play. Right? What's that? Yes, exactly. Extra pixie dust. So, yeah, right. So don't think that people don't have it. Everybody's got it who's part of the kingdom. But he will oftentimes give it again because the task is difficult. So Nicodemus has to wait 100 years to see the Christ. He's going to need the spirit for that. So all over the scripture, he's given it out again. But usually it's in the context of putting people into an office to do something in particular. Nicodemus' office was to bless God, to hold the sun. Okay, make sense? Who did I say? Simeon, I'm sorry. Not Nicodemus, Simeon. Well, his too, but uh, in a different way. Yeah, whatever. I was, yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking of Simeon. Nunc dimittis. That's why I said Nicodemus. Yeah. My way of getting out of it. So you have a double sinning. Look at Psalm 57 again, then. Verse three. He will send his truth and his love that never fails. Now Jesus has called those very same things. Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth." And the life. And Jesus, we always call him love. You know, we sing love divine, love all excelling, right? He will send his truth and his love that never fails. That's Christ. He will send from heaven and save me. That's the spirit. Unless you have the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, And the church fathers always talk this way. Unless you have the son and the spirit, you cannot know the father. Okay? You can't know the father. And so uh, Irenaeus, for one, who's a very early church father, um, he would often talk about the Son and the Spirit serving as the two hands of the Father. Make sense? So the Father, you never see. You hear him, but you never see him. But in actuality, you do see him because you have the Son and you have the Spirit. Okay? It's like Bruzek. Nelson and Gaining. Right? The two hands of Bruzek. Now, what you're all thinking is we never see him, but he's actually on vacation this week. So uh, you have the two hands then of the Father in this double sending. He will send his truth and his love. That's the Christ. He will send from heaven and save me. That's the Spirit. God himself will frustrate my persecutors. So here's the point. You don't have to worry about what to do with your enemies. That, in some time, in, uh, in some sense... Being so consumed about how to defeat your enemies or or make it through their trials or worry about how they're going to persecute you adds to the fear, the doubt, the worry, the anxiousness, and the pain to live with. So just stop thinking about it. Just stop thinking about it. This is Kleine, fear no man. So guess what? Don't worry about it. What can man do to me? Right? So he says, you'll frustrate my persecutors. It's not your job. It's his job. For I lie down among lions, man-eaters, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and whose tongue are sharp swords. And you've got everything going on there. They're trying to destroy you by hitting you with arrows, chewing you up and spitting you out, 
or whose tongues are sharp swords. That should remind you of James, right? They're speaking ill of David. Can you believe him? He's an adulterer. He did all this. Can the Lord really love him and forgive him? Show thyself, O God, high above the heavens. Let thy glory shine over all the earth. Men have prepared a net to catch me as I walk. That's great. Men have prepared a net to catch me as I walk, but I bow my head to escape from it. You see, they're just a simple act of adoration. He bows his head in adoration to the Father, and he escapes from the net. They have dug a pit in my path, but have fallen into it themselves. You notice that? Have you ever seen that happen, where people conjure up all these ill feelings, and they break the Eighth Commandment, and they do all these different things, and at the end of the day, who ends up looking the worst? They do. Right? I mean, that, that's the Lord sorting it out. It's not karma. That's how the Lord sorts things out. If you, I mean, this is, and, that, and that's what we talked about on Sundays. That's raw justice. You get what you've done. Okay? So, if you, so this should, like, watch yourselves. Don't do things to other people because it may come back to bite you. Same thing here. They have dug a pit in my path but have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast. What does yours say there? My heart is? Oh, it does. It says steadfast. Some translations say ready or prepared. And that might be better, actually. My heart is ready, O oh God. My heart is ready. This is the song of a man about to die. My heart is ready. My heart is ready. I will sing and raise a psalm. Awake, my spirit. Awake, awake, lute and harp. I will awake at dawn of day. That's resurrection talk. I will confess thee, O Lord, among the peoples. Among the nations I will raise a psalm to thee. For thy unfailing love is wide as the heavens and thy truth reaches the skies. And here you should be uh, at least recalling Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where he says, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's not one place in all of creation that is outside of his touch. Same thing here. For thy unfailing love is wide as the heavens, and thy truth reaches to the skies. There is no place in all of creation that is outside of the love and the truth of Christ. Now, how do love and truth work together? Because oftentimes I don't think the world thinks that way. If you love me, you may not tell me the truth. Like when Abby says, how do I look? What do I say? Beautiful. Which she is. But I think the world often thinks, if you love me, you may not tell me the truth. Like, that's wrong. Or that's a sin. When you actually speak the truth, oftentimes people say you're not very loving. So why in the text do love and truth go hand in hand? And how do you do that then? Good? Okay, so good. But there's, so we can't just say it, so now we've got to sort of flush it out because I don't know enough about love. Well, I, no, I shouldn't say that. I know a lot about love. But I don't know enough about what you mean by that to say, yes, you're right. So what do you mean by speak the truth in love? Because everybody says that. I, I can't tell you how many times people have said that to me. Speak the truth in love. What does that mean? Good. Yep. Good? Oh, yes. Yep, right. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah. Right. Same thing happens in the, I mean, same thing pastorally, the same thing happens. Yeah, exactly. I get it. Yes, right. And ultimately, if you're not speaking the truth, you're concerned about whom? The other or yourself? Yourself. Isn't this fascinating? If you fail to tell the truth, you're more concerned about yourself than you are about someone else. So the way to love people, to actually care about something, that's what love is, to care about someone else. The way to love people is to tell them the truth. Now you're right, it needs to be done with care and concern and toward the, toward the good of the other. But I often wonder what care and concern mean. And I'm, I'm being very honest now. Does that mean your tone of voice? Because I could say, that was really, that was really sinful. And people will still say, you're not being very loving. What does that mean? What are care and concern? Or does it mean not about how you say it, although that's part of it, because you can be honest or you can be brutally honest, and you can hurt people with what you say, but is it more about looking out for the good of their future? Is that where the care and the concern come into play? I'm going to tell you this, and it's, I, yes, I think you might be right. Yeah, right. Yes. And if you're worried about telling someone the truth, well, there it is, if you're worried about telling someone the truth. If you're afraid to tell someone the truth, you're more concerned about yourself, really, than you are about them. Okay, well, tell me how then. If, okay, if you're, if you're, if you're, let's say your husband doesn't come to church. He does, but he doesn't. Okay, good. Now, I, I okay, so I'll, I'll match you and I'll up you $10. I have the exact same, okay, so the exact same thing. And you know my reason for not telling people? Whatever it may be like even we're pregnant or whatever, would be, I don't, want, I, don't want all the, I don't want all the conversation. I don't want all the phone calls. So I, would, I agree with you. Even calling our folks, like, do we really need to tell them we, I'll give you an example. I'm going to go AT&T, not Sprint. The rest of my family has Sprint. The minute I tell them we're going AT&T, they're all going to say, now, you know, we have Sprint so we can talk to you for free. And I'm saying, do we really need to tell them right now because what I don't want are 12 phone calls from all the family saying, why did you go to Sprint? Now, that's a minor thing. <laughs> but it's concerned about me, not about them. And some people have the same situation you do. I, in fact, I just talked to someone who said, we haven't told our kids, but I've got cancer. Now, why aren't they telling their kids? Partly they don't want to frustrate them or make them upset, but they also said, we don't want all the phone calls right now. We just don't, we don't want to explain it. We don't want to do any of that. In some sense, that's concerned about themselves. And I know these are minor things. This isn't, I'm talking sin. I'm talking about relationships in the church. I do agree. Sometimes it is better for the other person not to tell them some things. But, but sin is a little different. You're not using, a, you're, not taking, you're not taking someone who's outside of the, sort of the normal walk of the Christian life. You're taking an event in your life that you don't want to burden someone with because of their age, their health, their distance, their whatever. That's very different than... Yes. Right. Yeah, oh, I understand. Believe me, I, I completely understand what you're saying, and I'm trying to actually talk about something else. But I do understand what you're saying. There are some things you just don't tell people because it... But that's not like... There are some pastors that say, I don't tell my congregation to come to church every week because I just don't want to upset them. But that's very different. That's very different. And that's the truth, but it's very different. Yes. 
Right. Yeah, right, right. Yes. Well, let me go to Rachel real quick because I actually, well, let me just say something before we go to Rachel. I think part of the difference is a different group, of, a different age group than maybe you would see truth as a set of objective data. Okay, so the Bible, for instance, is true. Why? Because it's, we believe it, it's data, it's written down, here it is. I think your demographic or my demographic, truth is more of a life than it is a set of data. So the way you engage people in that demographic is very different maybe than a different demographic would engage people. And for 50 or 60 years, we've always said to our non-believing friends, you ought to come to church. Why? Well, it says here, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It doesn't matter to them because they, this is not their reality. Their reality is I work hard, I have a good life, I don't want to get up on Sunday morning. So there has to be another way to tell them the truth as the text goes on to say, with gentleness and respect. Part of the care and the concern you said is recognizing who you're talking to. So if I'm talking to a member who doesn't come to church, that's a very different conversation than you talking to your unbelieving friend at work who loves you as Lindsay but really doesn't know much more about what you do on the weekends. Yeah, I think you have to respect what people say. Yeah. 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 Well, but, well, that, there are two things. One is, they, she's right, they still see your life. So this is, you know, let, let the world see your good deeds and so glorify your Father in heaven. The other thing is, you can't do anything by force. Yeah, I think, I mean, you can go to the doctor and they say you have cancer and you can say, I don't want to hear that. You still have cancer. But you can just keep telling them, I don't want to hear that. And eventually the doctor is going to say, okay, I'm not going to tell you anymore. But it doesn't change the reality. You still have it. So the question is, how do you engage people who don't want to hear it? I think Carol's exactly right. You engage them with a life, not with words. And that's, that's to your point. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and we've, this, is, this was all last year's Bible study, Simply Christian. This is what it was. Was how do you, no, 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 I'm not. I was, I was saying that more because we took a little heat for it. I mean, this was last year's Bible study, which was how do you embody the Christian life in such a way that it, people find it irresistible? Rachel. Right. Right. Yep. Right. Problem is most people don't actually believe they hear Jesus speaking. They just don't. I mean, they say, yeah, it's in the Bible, but I don't really... Partly what you're saying is, when you speak, that's as though Jesus is speaking, which is true, especially when you speak, and, I'm, and especially when you speak as a Christian who's concerned about someone else's welfare. You're speaking as a Christian to a Christian, as Luther would say, as a little Christ to a little Christ. But yeah, they don't... Right. I said that last year at this Bible study. Someone said... I don't get offended when Jesus says it. And I said, then why do you get offended when I say it? What's the difference? Or when you say it, you know? And this is, this is, this is even in the scriptures, you know, confess your sins to one another. That also means someone spotted you doing it saying, that probably isn't best.
Yep. Right. If we actually believe that everyone else who's baptized and who receives the Eucharist is the little Christ, would we talk about people the way we talk about them? Because <laughs> if you ask any, I promise you, you ask anybody who breaks the Eighth Commandment like with vigor, would you do that about Jesus? Vigor? Oh, <laughs> with vigor, <laughs> vigorously. They would never do that. In fact, they would say, oh yeah, I say, some, I, say some, I say some unkind things about other people, but I never say that about Jesus. Guess what? You're saying it about Jesus. Okay? Everybody okay? Hate to be Debbie Downer today. I shouldn't have picked Psalm 57. <laughs> All right. I will confess thee, verse 9, O Lord, among the peoples, among the nations, I will raise a psalm to thee. Confess thee. Interesting. You remember, to confess is just to say what Jesus says. So if Jesus is truth and love, then you're confessing him is to say truth and love. Yeah, I will confess thee, O Lord, among the peoples, among the nations, I will raise a psalm to thee. Yeah, I don't... Uh, well, remember, the psalms primarily are words of thanks. Um, but I don't have a different translation. That's the only one I've got here, so... Among the nations I will raise a psalm to thee, for thy unfailing love is as wide as the heavens, and thy truth reaches to the skies. Now, just let me look here while we're all... Ah, let's see. Oh, Lord, I will... Yes, this says, I will sing to thee among the Gentiles, for thy mercy has been magnified even to the heavens, and thy truth to the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and the, thy glory above all the earth. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, in the Old Testament it is. And it, 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 uh, it presumes a cosmic confession. You're confessing among everybody. And this, what this is trying to show you is, at least what the psalmist is trying to show you, your, your faith... Your confession, your life, is not as an individual. It's in the context of the entire world, the entire church. So you wouldn't say, me and my Jesus. That's not the way, that's not the way Christians talk. It's you as a little Christ in the context of everyone else who's a little Christ who makes up the entire body. This is a Catholic psalm, small c, in the truest sense of the word. It's all about the universal church. It's about the world. That's why he ends by saying, show thyself, O God, High above the heavens, let thy glory shine over all the earth. Let everyone see what you have done. And we sing about that every week. Tell everyone what he has done. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh... Yeah, it has, this is why I said it has overtones of the resurrection. Remember we sing at the Easter Vigil, uh, this is the night from whence all nights receive their light, for this is the night when the seal of the grave is broken, and the dawn of the new creation breaks forth amid all the world. There's this idea that all of the world is shaken as the dawn comes to bear, and that is the resurrection. 
So what he's saying is, I will, in my own body, bring forth the resurrection. I'll bring forth the Christ who rises from the dead. I will awake the dawn of the day. That's what Jesus does. Right? And what you see here in this psalm alone is that really the psalms are meant to do three things. Maybe more. But first of all, they're meant to purify you, show you kind of who you really are and cleanse it. They're meant to safeguard you, meaning hide in the shadow of his wings. And they're also meant to redirect you from yourself out to the world. And you see that all in truth and love. His love purifies, his love safeguards, and his truth redirects your eyes. It's not about you, it's about Christ. And you see that even here then in this double, uh, this double giving, this double coming of the Son and the Spirit. Everybody okay? Any questions? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Even as they're trying to track him down. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And you, and you have to see, even in the midst of, as he would say, the storms or the destruction, that's part of his purpose for you. Right? It's only to make you stronger. Um, and so you have to see yourself, even, you can't just say all the good times are from the Lord and all the bad times are from me. Even in the bad times, when you've not created the bad things, even in those bad times, he's directing you according to his purpose. And that's why we often say the Lord will sort it out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, right, because you're an American. <laughs> Well, you, do, you get an extra dose, too, every week. Right. Every, every part of the body does a different thing. Your foot does a different thing than your hand. But we're all part of the body. Yeah. Because remember, this is, what I, this is how I led today. It's amazing how it's all worked out. I led by saying, in the Eucharist, it's not just flesh and blood. Remember what Colossians says, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When you go to the Eucharist and you take the Son, you get the Father and the Spirit. So every time you come to the Eucharist, it's an extra dose of the Spirit for whatever your task in life may be. That's why coming to the Eucharist so often is so important. Because the, the farther you get away and the less you have that extra dose, the more difficult it is to sort of survive. But yeah, but it's all for your, for your purpose. It's directed by God. It's your vocation. It's what he's called you to do. That may just be a mother. I mean, you need an extra dose of the Spirit to stay up all night when the baby's crying, right? So you need to see it as one body working together to make it. It's one person working together to walk back to Eden. Okay, you're Adam. We're Adam and Eve together, one body working back to Eden. Okay? All right. Vic, you got anything? All right. Let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.